Hi, and welcome to Strangers on the Internet. My name is Irina Manta, and I'm a professor at the Maurice A. Dean School of Law at Hofstra University. I'm also a dating coach and a consultant for the dating app industry. All views expressed in this podcast are my own and not my employers, and the same goes for all podcast guests. This episode is part of my continued coverage of the hashtag MeToo allegations against Joshua Wright, an ex-professor at the George Mason University Antonin Scalia Law School and former FTC commissioner currently accused of sexual misconduct by several former students and a former job applicant. If you haven't listened to the previous episodes on this topic yet, please start by playing episode 39 with Professor Krista Laser, episode 40 with Professor Brandy Wagstaff, and episode 41 with Elisa Schatzman. Also, hit follow for our show on your preferred podcast platform before you forget so that you don't miss any of our future episodes. We truly rely on your help via follows and five-star reviews to keep growing this podcast. So if you believe in our mission, please help us out with both of these things. Thanks so much. Today, I want to take a deeper dive into the defamation lawsuit that Josh Wright filed against his two alleged victims, Elise Dorsey and Angela Landry. I have with me today Dylan Esper, an attorney who litigates defamation lawsuits for a living and who will walk us through what's going on here. I'm so glad to have with me today Dylan Esper, who's an attorney with Harder Stone Rock LLP, which is a firm that has offices in Beverly Hills, New York City, and Washington, D.C. He has been a litigator for over 25 years and has represented both plaintiffs and defendants in a variety of areas, such as entertainment, intellectual property, and business litigation, and most importantly for our purposes, areas such as defamation law and First Amendment. Dylan completed his legal education at the University of Southern California Law Center and has an undergraduate degree from California State University, Los Angeles. Among his many accolades, he is also the winner of the Chautauqua Award for Outstanding Contribution to Public Service. Dylan, welcome. You and I have been following each other on Twitter for a while, and I immediately noticed your strong reaction to the Josh Wright defamation lawsuit. I definitely want to hear more about your personal and professional response to all this. But first, can you please walk our listeners through what Josh Wright's lawsuit claims, understanding that many of our listeners don't have law degrees. So let's take it step by step. So Joshua Wright alleges in his lawsuit that the two defendants, whose names are Elise Dorsey and Angela Landry, are people that he had long-term personal relationships with while he was a lawyer and law professor, and that those relationships at some point came to a conclusion, and that after those relationships came to a conclusion, that the defendants, Dorsey and Landry, went to employers, potential clients, and eventually to the public and to journalists with a story that allegedly falsely accused him of sexually harassing them and cost him clients business relationships and his reputation for which he's suing for damages. He sues on four counts, basically a defamation count, which alleges directly that these two people lied about him and defamed him and cost him money and business relationships. And then a intentional interference with business relations count, which alleges that they intended to sabotage his business relationships with their false statements. 
and then two conspiracy counts, which are basically add-on counts, saying the two people conspired in a conspiracy to defame him and deprive him of his business relationships. Now, quick fun fact for our listeners, or, you know, fun in air quotes. So this is all happening in Fairfax County Circuit Court in Virginia, the same courtroom that saw another defamation lawsuit that exploded last year, which was the one of Johnny Depp against Amber Heard. But one of the several differences is that here, Josh Wright is actually asking for more money than Johnny Depp and Amber Heard were. He's asking for $108 million. Maybe we should start with that. Were you shocked at that figure? I'm never shocked by anything that a plaintiff's lawyer asked for in a complaint. It's the civil equivalent of what we sometimes see prosecutors do in criminal cases where they stack the charges so that they can get the media to report. If this man is convicted on all charges, it carries a maximum sentence of 523 years in federal prison. And of course, nobody's going to get 523 years in federal prison. And in the same way, you know, people who are seeking publicity for their complaints will often ask for a massive amount of damages that is far more than they could ever expect to get. I think that does raise a question, which is why Professor Wright would particularly want to seek publicity for the allegations that he himself has made in this particular complaint, because a lot of those allegations cast Professor Wright as a very nasty and dislikable person, which is not generally what you see in a plaintiff's complaint. Usually a plaintiff's complaint casts the plaintiff in the role of an innocent victim who is preyed upon by tort feasors or contract breachers or whatever. This complaint paints Joshua Wright as a two-timing and three-timing cad who did all sorts of terrible things to his girlfriends who then turned around and allegedly defamed well, and all of this while he was married, right? And all of this while he was married, yes. So, and even just the way the complaint starts throws a bomb, right? So I'm going to, I've already read bits of this on the last episode, but just the, I want to repeat the, the first sentence. Defendants Elise Dorsey and Angela Landry both scorned former lovers and law students of plaintiff Joshua Wright have embarked on a vendetta to destroy his reputation portray themselves as hashtag MeToo victims and make a fortune in the process. So you as an experienced litigator, you read that as a first sentence. What's your reaction as to where this is going? It is a really weird way to start any sort of legal complaint. Because again, what you normally want to do in a legal complaint, especially one that's going to get publicity, is you want to cast your client in a very positive light. And from the outset, the theme of this complaint is I gave them sex, I helped them with their careers, and these ungrateful women came after me anyway. And that is a message. If you just imagine like presenting that message to a court or even worse, a jury and what they're going to think about you, it is precisely the wrong message that a, especially a defamation plaintiff would want to put forth because defamation is all about your reputation. You want to say, I was a good character and my good character was sullied by the actions of these defendants. Well, 
And in fact, there's even a legal doctrine that connects this, which is the libel-proof plaintiff. Famously, for instance, Nathan Leopold, who was of Leopold and Loeb, the two infamous teenagers who committed a thrill kill in the 1920s, and this became a sensational story. Well, Nathan Leopold, much later in his life, sued an author who implied he had a sexual relationship with his co-defendant, Loeb. Loeb, by that time, was dead. And the Illinois courts rejected that claim and said, you're libel-proof. You know, you committed an infamous homicide, and nothing these guys can do can soil your reputation any more than it's already been soiled. And you, you want to avoid that if you're writing a complaint for defamation, and Wright walks right into that argument with this sort of approach. Well, and presumably that, and we're speculating here a little bit, but presumably that happened because he and his lawyers knew there was enough evidence that there were certain things they couldn't deny. They couldn't deny that he had had sexual relationships of some sort with those women. And so one question that I have for you is to recover money or at least substantial sums of money, will Josh need to show he lost, for example, clients not because he slept with students, which he admits in the complaint to doing, but specifically because of doing so as a matter of quid pro quo or using other pressures, which he denies, right? So because people have said, I mean, those clients were going to let him go anyway if they knew he had slept with students, even if it was, quote unquote, consensual the way he claims. What's your reaction to that? Well, there's all sorts of problems with his argument. First of all, there's two types of damages in the defamation case. There's general damages, which is just sort of the fuzzy notion of your reputation and how it was harmed. And then there's special damages, which is specific lost contracts. I lost a job because of this. Somebody refused to do business with me because of this. With respect to the general damages, he's going to have a very hard time because he is such a disreputable character and so many true things have been said about him that it's hard to see how his reputation really got hurt if a few of the things that were said about him were false. With respect to the lost contracts, your question asks absolutely the right question, which is to what extent is this tied to any defamatory statement, i.e. Many of these clients perhaps just don't want to do business with them anymore because he's the type of guy who's a married guy who sleeps with all of his students. And to the extent that that's the reason why they don't want to do business with the guy, well, that, that's true. That's not defamatory. Indeed, he admits it in his complaint. To the extent they don't want to do business with him because he's the type of vindictive person who would go after former girlfriends in public because they're unhappy with him that he broke up with them, you know, that's true too. And that's not going to be actionable. And even on stuff like sexual harassment, there's a substantial truth doctrine in defamation law. So, okay, maybe what he did, maybe did not meet the technical legal definition of sexual harassment. And I want to make clear, I'm not even sure of that maybe. In other words, in point of fact, he might have been running a quid pro quo operation here. There's certainly enough facts here to infer that he might have been running a quid pro quo operation. There's certainly enough facts in what Professor Crystal Laser has alleged that basically he dangled a job in front of her, then asked her for a date. And when 
She turned him down. Suddenly the job disappeared. I mean, what does that sound like to you? That sounds like potentially quid pro quo sexual harassment. Uh, if you sleep with me, you get ahead. If you don't, you don't. That's, you know, not very much different from what the Meritor Savings Bank did to Ms. Vincent back 40 years ago. So it could be quid pro quo sexual harassment, but even if it doesn't technically meet the definitions of sexual harassment. Is it really substantially untrue for his exes to be saying they were pressured into the relationship? They thought that the relationship was in exchange for some benefits. They felt like they were sexually harassed. They felt like they didn't have a choice but to do that. I mean, that's going to make it extremely difficult for him to actually established that he lost one of these lucrative business opportunities because of a lie that was told about him, as opposed to, at the most, a sort of difference of opinion as to whether his conduct was merely that of a over-sexualized cad or whether it was the conduct of a sexual harasser. Yeah, that's very interesting. You know, another question that I have for you is, can you tell our listeners who has the burden of proof when it comes to questions such as, for example, the one about whether he pressured Elise for sex or not? Well, in American defamation law, the plaintiff always has the burden. This is a break that was made with English common law where truth was a defense to a defamation claim, that the plaintiff only had to prove that the claim was scandalous or damaging to their reputation, and then the defendant had the burden of establishing that it was in fact true. In American law, the plaintiff always has the burden of proving that the statements about him were false and that they were not substantially true. And then furthermore, Professor Wright is going to have an additional burden because he's almost certainly a public figure. He was a high government official at the FTC. He was a famous law professor. And even if he isn't a general public figure, he's certainly a public figure with respect to sexual harassment allegations in academia, given his history on these issues. So he's going to have to prove by clear and convincing evidence that these statements were made with actual malice, meaning that either the defendants knew they were lying or were so on notice of the facts which show that their statements are false and just consciously disregarded them. That they had an awareness that their statements had a high degree of probable falsity is the language from the case law. And good luck proving that at trial, if he even gets to trial, you know, there's strong arguments that this complaint should be dismissed in the pleading stages. And then he's going to face, even if it isn't dismissed, all sorts of difficulties in discovery. Okay, a lot to unpack here. So one, let's stick for a second with this issue of did he pressure Elise Dorsey for sex or not during that incident, during the trip to California. So just to remind our listeners, Elise Dorsey said that she took a trip with him to California that was presented as a business trip. And once she got there, there was only one hotel room. And then on the last day, he essentially pressured her into having sex with him. And uh, he says that, no, this was a 
lover's trip to wine country, according to the complaint, that they were already having sex. And so the fact that there was only one hotel room is, is cast in a completely different light. So I want what I want to ask you about this, because there is a factual dispute here. What role is it going to play? What evidentiary role? What role with the jury should it end up there or, you know, or with the judge? What role will it play that there are other women now also claiming that they ended up in a one hotel room situation with him as students without knowing that in advance, according to the Bloomberg article that just came out a couple of days ago in the statements they made there? So I want to make two responses to that. First, I want to say something that's not quite of in the call of your question. But the way he's pleaded this, and this is a theme in his pleading, I don't think he's actually successfully pleaded a false statement yet. And he has to do that to even get to discovery and then trial. So what he says is that she made a false statement in saying that he, he didn't tell her that he only booked one bed in the room. And his response to that is, well, we were in a pre-existing relationship, so I only booked one bed. Notice that that doesn't actually deny the statement she made. That doesn't say the statement she made is false. Indeed, I, I mean, it's a little, I accept that I'm being a little bit hypothetical here, but you know, like if you were in a, and you have to, I think, consider the context of the relationship here. If they're having an affair, they're having a kind of illicit relationship. She's not like his monogamous partner. They're having an affair. He doesn't tell her that he plans to have sex with her on this trip. Maybe she doesn't want to have sex with him on this trip. Maybe she doesn't know if she wants to have sex with him on this trip. I mean, whatever. I'm not trying to be too flip here. I'm just trying to say, like, the fact that he doesn't deny that the actual statement she made is true. It may be completely true that, in fact, he didn't tell her he was only booking one bed and she felt that there was something skeevy about that because of any of the reasons I just gave. And at the same time, he's thinking just like, oh, this is perfectly all right. You know, we've been having sex already. So, of course, I'll book one bread. But that's not a defamatory statement because in that set of facts, it wouldn't be false. You know, she didn't say anything false. She just said he booked us in one bed and he's saying, well, I'm arguing the interpretation of that fact, but the interpretation of that fact doesn't make the statement false. It doesn't make it defamatory. So I don't think he's, and this is a theme I have with his pleading. I think with a lot of things in his complaint, he actually just includes a non-denial denial. He doesn't actually plead that the statement that the woman makes is false. Let me push back on that one a little bit in this case because you know there is a disagreement as to like where she is saying this was the first time we had sex was in this context of his having booked only one hotel room and that's especially bad right i mean isn't he isn't he denying that isn't he saying that that is a defamatory statement is it though is it you tell me part of reputation that it, this was the first time they had sex and the, as opposed to not the first time they had sex? I mean, let's well, say potentially. Let's the second time they had sex. Or let's assume they had had sex six months ago and hadn't had sex since then. The point is, is that you have, if you're a plaintiff, you carry the burden on all these things. You, you have to plead a statement was false and that it was defamatory. 
Now, if in fact he told her, I'm booking two rooms, and she's just lying about that, well then, that would be a false statement that could be defamatory because she's making it sound like he basically did the oldest trick in the book, you know, induced a woman into a hotel room with only one bed and said, gee, what do we do now? You know, that's, that's, that's something that probably dates back to them as long as there's been hotels, and that would be defamatory. But if what is actually being said here is, yeah, he in fact booked one bed, didn't tell her that he was booking one bed, and uh, that's all true, but the only dispute here is to whether they'd ever had sex before. Well, why is whether they'd ever had sex before damaging to Professor Wright's reputation? It's, that's, you know, maybe that's false. Maybe they have a difference of recollection about it, but that doesn't mean that that's the type of thing that costs him $600,000 contracts with Kirkland and Ellis or something. It's, you actually have to have all of these elements, false statement, damaging to reputation, knowingly false or with reckless disregard to the truth, and the statement cost you the money. You have to have all those things. You have to connect all the dots. Professor Wright's pleading doesn't do that. And I suspect it's because he can't do that. I suspect because a lot of the stuff, even if there are things, and I'm not in any way, I think the victim's statements are very compelling, and I which should also, full disclosure, they said some nice things to me in response to my Twitter thread. But, you know, uh, e even assuming that there's something that they're saying is wrong, even assuming there's something they're saying that, you know, they're, where they might be deliberately sh shading something, that's not defamation. You have to prove all those elements and connect all those dots before you have a claim for defamation. Do you think it's going to be relevant factually, whether it turns out that Josh helped the defendants even while not in a sexual relationship, as he claims he did? Because he talks about that a lot in the complaint. Well, I guess if we, I mean, I'm very skeptical this ever gets to a jury, and I think I've said that. But if we take ourselves to a situation at trial and say, how is Professor Wright going to prove his claim? Well, I guess he's going to argue to a jury that yes, his conduct after the relationships were over shows that he wasn't in fact sexually harassing them. But, you know, I, I think there are strong counter arguments to that. I suspect, I'm not an expert in this, and this is probably an area where it would be nice to get like a feminist law professor or something who really knows the cases on this. But I, it wouldn't surprise me if it is in fact extremely common that sexual harassers not only help people that they are currently in relationships with, but continue to help people who they had been in relationships with. And that that does not in any way negate the fact that they harassed them or that there was a quid pro quo. Well, that's very, that's very interesting, right? Because uh, first of all, I myself have the same intuition as what you're describing that whether someone did or did not help after a relationship ends doesn't really necessarily tell you anything about whether there was a quid pro quo in the first place or not. The second thing is, is a bit more of a just purely evidentiary problem. Just because he said he was helping them in some of those, I think there were some exhibits, right? Some attachments to the complaint where like there's a discussion about, you know, 
what what's going to happen, for example, to Angela Landry and how might he help her. It doesn't necessarily mean that he provided all of the help he said he was. And, you know, let's just say that I have some facts at my disposal that cast some real question marks as to some of the statements um, that Josh has made in the past about things he was doing for somebody that he was not actually doing. So you've got that evidentiary piece there also. Uh, It's not enough to say, oh yeah, I'm doing this and that and the other. And so I, I think both of those points are are pretty, pretty relevant. So looking at a couple of other things. So before I sort of continue on with some of the facts, et cetera, can you just tell our listeners what an anti-slap lawsuit is and what role it might play in this case? Okay, so the term slap uh, was coined by a law professor 30 years ago named George Pring, and it means strategic lawsuit against public participation. And the original idea behind it actually had not that much to do with defamation law. So what would happen is that, let's say somebody was going to develop a big project near your house and you and your neighbors were opposed to it. You, you thought it would change the character of the neighborhood. You felt it was a, a bad idea, produce traffic, whatever. So you and your neighbors would get together and you'd go to the city council meeting or whatever, and you'd oppose it and say, don't build this project, don't issue the permits. This isn't a good idea. And the big corporation that's developing this thing that stands to make hundreds of millions of dollars would file some sort of lawsuit against you saying you were interfering with their contracts, you were defaming them, you were intentionally inflicting emotional distress on the CEO, whatever. But the point wasn't even about the allegations. The point wasn't even about winning the case. It was simply that a lot of times people in your position would be unable to commit the money to hire the lawyers to fight these sorts of claims. And so it would shut you up. It would effectively deter people who wanted to criticize these projects. And this was going on quite a lot in the 1980s. So Pring wrote his article and said, we need to do something about this. And the something that legislatures came up with, and the first one I think was actually California with a statute that's section 425.16 of the California Code of Civil Procedure. And what it did was it said, if you're filing a lawsuit that is based on either on somebody's First Amendment activity or their own access to the court, their own litigation. You can't just file that lawsuit and get right into discovery and cost them all sorts of money. You have to show upfront that you have probable cause to file that claim, that you have what we call a prima facie case. And in the California system, What that meant is that at the very start of a case, which is usually a defamation case, because defamation cases often involve speech and First Amendment activity, so they're subject to the statute. And so if you're a defamation plaintiff in California, you now have to come forward at the start of your case with evidence supporting all the allegations in your complaint. You can't just allege them in your complaint like a normal litigant can. You have to have evidence supporting each one, and it's sometimes very hard to come up with that evidence. So... In point of fact, and the other thing the SLAP statute does that's really important is that it awards the defendants their attorney's fees when you don't have the evidence. When you don't come correct, they get their attorney's fees 
for filing this motion, which can be $100,000, $200,000, $300,000. So it turns the tides totally on slap suits. Now, if somebody files a slap suit to, for instance, shut up those protesters who are protesting the big development, well, those protesters can get lawyers on contingency because they're looking at a potential substantial award of money, or they can get lawyers that they pay because they know they're going to get their money back when they defeat the suit because the suit doesn't have any merit. And that means that the suit is no longer useful to the developer, so they don't file it in the first place. So that's sort of the academic case for anti-slap motions. Virginia has an anti-slap statute. However, it doesn't work in a way that's particularly useful for these defendants because it doesn't have what California has, which is that you file a motion up front against the pleading and they have to come forward up front with evidence supporting all the elements of their claim. Instead, it just says that if a action is determined to be a slap suit, at the end of the case, you can get an award of attorney's fees. Now that's not nothing. That could be very useful to these defendants, especially if Wright turns out to have, you know, legally unmeritorious claims and is asserting factually incorrect arguments. They're able to defeat all these things and eventually beat the lawsuit. And at that point, they may be able to get an award of their attorney's fees from back from Professor Wright. That's worth something. But it's not the same thing as a anti-slap motion in California that can really just kill the case up front. Yeah, and, and there was a discussion again during the depth we heard about, you know, why was this case filed in, in Virginia, right? I mean, in, in this particular case, uh, it's it's a bit more logical, right, that it happened in, in Virginia and in that particular court because uh, indeed the uh, alleged behaviors, right, that are relevant here uh, happen in that location. So it is a little bit different, but there is an interesting, there's definitely an interesting history there. And there's also a call for reform by a number of people about Virginia's anti-slap statute and whether it should be made stronger to prevent exactly scenarios like the one that we're seeing right now. I have another kind of procedural or kind of, um, uh, let's say just sort of general legal type question here, which is Josh's complaint, and I've also seen the, his one of his attorneys make statements about this in the press, but Josh's complaint kind of seems to weaponize that Elise and Angela allegedly asked for millions of dollars in exchange for not proceeding in various ways against him. Now, assuming that this happened, does that necessarily tell us something nefarious about Elise and Angela, or is that fairly standard operating procedure even for legitimate claims of sexual harassment or whatnot? This is the one area of the case where I just really like to see, not that I want to, I'd like to see this case dismissed, honestly, but if sort of on an intellectual level, sort of a wanting to know what happened level, that's the one issue where I'd actually like to see some litigation because there's a lot of different possibilities here. You know, on the one hand, it's not improper when you have a claim against somebody to seek a settlement, to seek recompense. And if these women feel they were sexually harassed and they were exploited by Josh Wright and he did something wrong to them and they come to him and say, you know, we want compensation, that, that there's nothing wrong with that. That is, that's 
standard in all sorts of different types of legal disputes. And it is not illegal to do that. And it is not unethical to do that. And on the other hand, if somebody starts conditioning things, you know, then you get now importantly here, Professor Wright has not actually pleaded an extortion claim. And, you know, that's notable because if it actually meets the definition of extortion, one would think he would plead it. But, you know, there are situations where even with a wrongdoer, you know, you aren't allowed to literally say, well, I know you did something terribly wrong, but I'm willing to keep the secret, but only if you pay me $10 million. That's extortion. You know, and, and if somebody did that, that would be a different issue. And, and in between that are a bunch of gradations. And we certainly don't know, based on the allegations in this complaint, what actually transpired. Professor Wright isn't exactly forthcoming and specific in his pleading about what he is exactly saying they said to him. And this is an area where what they said to him would be really important. And uh, why might that be? I mean, even if we read this in, let's say, the light most favorable to him, okay, what might be a good reason to not be more specific? Is there one? In my mind, now, I, I, I should be clear. I haven't like practiced a lot in Virginia. So it's possible that in some courts, they don't care that much about your factual allegations and how specific you are. And yet, certainly in many courts, and certainly in federal courts in recent years, given the Iqbal Twombly standard, which is the more specific pleading standards that have been enacted over the past 20 years in federal courts, and in many state courts around the country which are following that, you have to spell out your claims in some detail, and you risk getting dismissed if you don't. And certainly, if you have facts it's usually, and you know they're true, it's usually better to plead them. Like if I were actually in a situation where a client came to me and said, I'm being extorted by two women who I had affairs with, who are now falsely claiming I sexually harassed them. I didn't, but they're threatening to accuse me of sexual harassment publicly if I don't pay them $10 million. If that's what the client said, and if I checked it out and thought it was true and agreed to take on the case, I would plead that in great specificity down to like the specific emails or texts or calls or what social media messages where they communicated the extortive threat, what exactly they said, what exactly they said my client had to do to avoid this publicity, what they specifically said they were going to publicize. I'd put it all in there because that's how you get past a motion to dismiss. That's how you get into discovery, and that's how you prosecute a claim. Whereas if you just plead vagaries, especially on an issue like this, the court's going to look at you and say, well, why didn't you plead the details? You know, why, why am I supposed to conclude that this is necessarily extortion rather than simply somebody trying to settle their beef with your client? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I'm sensing it is basically fairly difficult to to feel neutral about the lack of some of these facts uh, when when reading this complaint. Like if we had to sort of guess, if we had to sort of speculate, more likely than not, there is a problem there, right? Is that that unfair of me to to put it like that? 
that's not unfair for two reasons. First of all, because these are causes of action, these particular causes of action are causes of action where you generally have to plead a lot of facts. I already said that with defamation. With defamation, you're expected to plead the false statement. You're expected to plead actual malice. If it's, you're a public figure, you're expected to plead the relationship between the false statement and the damages that were caused. With respect to intentional interference with contract, you're expected to plead the specific contract. You're expected to plead the specific acts, the specific statements, whatever, and that there was a causal relationship between those statements and you losing the contract and that the statements weren't privileged in some way. So, you know, the, you have to plead facts related to this, these elements. It's different than some other causes of action. There are some causes of action that you can plead kind of generically. You know, if, if you're pleading the breach of a supply contract, you can just say, well, the contract said they were supposed to supply X number of goods. We didn't get X number of goods. We were damaged. And that's generally enough to survive a motion to dismiss. But with these sorts of claims that involve very specific tortious actions based on words and conduct, you have to plead pretty specifically and mental states as well and causation. The other thing about this is remember what we said in the very beginning, that this was a complaint that has been publicized. This was a complaint that was intended to be publicized. And when you are, when a complaint is a form of press release, when you are trying to tell the public a story, you don't spare the details because there's a litigation privilege, which in, is jargon. What it means is that anything you put in a complaint you can't be sued for defamation for that. Whereas anything you say in a press conference, you might be able to be sued for defamation. Anything you say in an interview in a reporter, you might be able to be sued for defamation. So your complaint is really your one chance to get your story out without being worrying about a countersuit from the defendants. So you, again, that means you, if you're going to want to publicize your complaint, you want to put it all in there. You want to put all your facts in this one document, everything that's favorable to your claim. So you get that publicity and so that you don't have to worry about saying it at a later date in some other context where you might get sued for it. So when facts are not included in this sort of a complaint, I think as a layman, a court wouldn't necessarily do this, but as a layman, you should infer that someone like Josh Wright, and I didn't mention one other thing, Josh Wright is a lawyer and law professor. So, you know, he knows these things. He knows the pleading rules. He knows how litigation plays publicly. So, you know, for that reason as well, if he doesn't include something, that's going to tell you something about that particular fact. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's talk about some of the other facts in the complaint that jumped out at me. What do you make of the fact that Josh talks quite a bit about the fact that Elise Dorsey was married and that Angela Landry was in a long-term relationship while they were in sexual relationships with Josh, respectively? Is that legally relevant or does that feel like a little bit of a smear job? Okay, so he his argument as to why it's legally relevant, at least with Dorsey, he has a fake leaf of an argument. With Dorsey, he says that one of the things that Dorsey said that was allegedly defamatory was accusing him of wanting to keep the relationship secret. 
And, he, and this is another of his non-denial denials. He doesn't actually ever say that he didn't say that Dorsey keep the relationship secret. Indeed, getting back to our earlier point about what to, inferences to draw, I would actually bet good money that he indeed told his paramours to keep the relationship secret because he was married. Uh, but his claim is that this is defamatory because in fact, she also wanted to keep the relationship secret. But you know, it's, it, that doesn't make it a false statement. That's a non-denial denial, but that's his argument for the relevance of the statement. He's going to use it to prove that the statement that he wanted to keep the relationship secret was defamatory. Now note that only applies to Dorsey and not to Landry, but also let's be clear here. Okay. And this is a complaint that beyond its legal significance, and, and this is the reason that I originally tweeted about the complaint is I've never read any, I've read thousands of legal complaints in my legal career. I've never read anything like this. And the reason why I've never read anything like this, because I've never read a complaint that really gives you a window into the plaintiff's dark soul. And this does. Professor Wright was married at the time he starts a relationship with defendant one. He starts a relationship with defendant two while he's still in a relationship with defendant one. He is even like the, you know, the one ruined with the conference thing, you know, why are they having sex at the conference? Well, they're having sex at the conference because he's away from his wife when he's at the conference. I mean, come on, that's why they're doing that. So that even implies that he's doing it on the down low. And as I said, we have the non-denial denial of the fact that he told her to keep the relationship secret. And he uh, alleges a third relationship that occurred in this period. And of course, we have Professor Wagstaff, who's been on your show, who talks about a fourth relationship that was going on. And then we have Professor Laser, who indicates that Professor Wright was trying to start a fifth relationship with her. And then we have Professor Wright's current girlfriend, who he met when she was a student. So that's a sixth relationship. So we have a man here who... And we also, if I might add, we have the, the potential attempts that are being alleged by individuals in the Bloomberg article who talk about being either sort of like uh, having alcohol pushed on them or being put in these one hotel room type situations or receiving flirtatious texts or... So there's a there's a lot allegedly going on here, right? What what does that tell us? Like, tell tell us more because I didn't mean to stop you. Yeah, I, I would say like what what I was saying that was just the complaint. The window we get into his dark soul in the complaint. It should not be surprising at all that it turns out that the extrajudicial evidence in this case corroborates the picture of his dark soul that we get in this complaint. So we have this person, and then we have some indication of how he operates. As I said, he's having relations with people on business trips when he's away from his wife. We also have information about the way he treats women when he breaks up with them. So, you know, he's been with this one defendant for 11 years, and he wants to break it off. 
understandable. He's, I think, still married and he's got other women in his life, obviously. He wants to break it off. So what does he do? He texts her. And then she responds basically with the kind of stuff that you would expect your 11-year girlfriend to respond with if you have the audacity to break up with her in the text message, you know. What are you doing? I poured so much into this relationship. I gave you my heart, etc., etc. You know, you're a scoundrel. And then he shows up at his workplace, presumably because, like a mature adult, she wants to discuss the matter of the ending of his 11-year affair with her that he wanted to break off with a text message. And he pleads that he feared for his life and for the life of his children because his girlfriend that he'd been sleeping with for 11 years actually wanted to have a face-to-face discussion with him about his breaking up with her. Uh, That tells you a lot about him, and it tells you a lot about his character. And the, the fact that he says, this was the one that got me into this. This was the one that really started me down this rabbit hole was he says he wants to portray what a good boyfriend he was to these multiple women that he was juggling in his life. And he does that by saying, well, you know, one of these women said I was, you know, the best friend and confidant she ever had and uh, told me her deepest secrets in her life because she trusted me so much. Okay. And then he says, for example, she told me that her father was not her biological father and that she'd been sexually assaulted twice. <laughs> and why, of course, what I said in my tweet thread is why would you put this in the complaint? But, you know, what a window into this guy's soul that, you know, he praises himself for being such a great confidant and such a trusting friend to these women that are in his life. And then, at the first opportunity, just completely betrays them by throwing this stuff, the deepest, darkest secrets in their lives into a public complaint that everybody's going to read. Who does that? And, and he, he does that voluntarily. He does that when he has complete control of the content of his own pleading. It's not like it was a He's in a deposition and someone asks him about this and he says, well, I don't really want to disclose this because it was told to me in confidence, but this is what she said to me. That's one thing. This is him voluntarily giving up this information to try and harm these women who trusted him and slept with him for 11 years. What kind of man does that? Well, and and I think it might actually get even worse than what you just said, potentially, because so so here is the part where he talked about the the two sexual assaults. He says, defendant Dorsey also confided in Mr. Wright on two separate occasions that she had been sexually assaulted by two different members of the antitrust bar. Mr. Wright believed her at the time. And so to me, the way that that sentence reads is actually an implication of this is a woman who goes around making sexual allegations against men. Watch out. Uh, She might be, you know, accusing lots of people of lots of horrible stuff and is lying every time. 
You're absolutely right. I mean, isn't, isn't that what, because yeah. what else? Why is Mr. Wright believed her at the time? What other legal function does that serve in this particular complaint? Absolutely. It serves no legal function whatsoever. He just, he, he, the whole theme of this complaint is these ungrateful women. That's the whole theme. This is how I'm going to get back at these people. I helped them so much with their careers. I helped them personally. I had sex with them and, you know, gave them lovely relationships. They ought to be in debt to me. They ought to be thankful to me. Instead, they've turned on me and I'm going to make them pay. And that's what the, that is the theme of this complaint. And you'll, I, I swear you, you, you can, I can read another thousand complaints over the next 15 years. I'll never see another complaint like this one. You know, people often say that when you've got a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Do you, do you wish there had been a better path forward for Josh here outside of this lawsuit? Like on a both sort of legal level, like if he was to come to you and, and was considering this lawsuit or, or on a human level, what do you wish he had actually done instead? Well, on a legal level, I would have turned them down. I would have said something along the lines of, you don't have any legal claims here for the various reasons I talked about. You aren't a sympathetic plaintiff and aren't likely, even if you get past all the legal barriers, to get very much money here. And I would have said a third thing, which we haven't even, I touched on just slightly, which is you're not going to like the discovery process at all, because what you do if you file a complaint like this is that you open up your entire personal life for scrutiny. And and especially I would add like one of you, when you're a defense lawyer in a situation like this, and if you get into discovery, you're going to seize on his vulnerabilities. Well, what are his vulnerabilities? Well, a big one is He's currently in a relationship with one of his ex-students. And one of the things I would want to do if I took his deposition is I would want to make him as uncomfortable as possible about his modus operandi and the things he did to get women to have sex with him, to get students to have sex with him, and to get all those details onto the record and I would have had, I would have researched, I would have tried to get as many women as possible onto my team and gotten their text messages and gotten their emails from them and gotten uh, statements that he's made to them so that I could just lay it all out in deposition and ask him about it. And part of the point would be so that if his girlfriend ever reads that transcript and she realizes what the man that she's with is really like, you know, that's what you do when you're facing a meritless lawsuit and you get into discovery, you just punish the guy. You just make him sorry that he ever entered the court system. And that's what's going to happen if he, you know, if, if anything, the only thing worse than him losing a motion to dismiss is him winning on a motion to dismiss, because then be subjected to this process. And his entire MO is going to be relevant to this case which means everything he did in all of his relationships with all the different students he slept with and all the different students he tried to sleep with is going to be fair game in the discovery process. And it's going to be extremely painful for him. And that's what I would tell him. Now, in terms of what Josh Wright should have done, I honestly think, Professor Manta, that sometimes in this world, 
when you've done something really wrong, you're just screwed. And that is especially true with the sorts of allegations that we now categorize as Me Too. There may be some people, you know, there are some isolated examples like Louis C.K. did some really terrible things and he's been able to reconstruct his career, partly because comedy audiences are very forgiving, partly because he's just a man with a lot of talent, you know, you can't, if Louis C.K. is the guy who makes you laugh, you know, you can't duplicate that with another performer. So comedy's unique in that respect. But a lot of these people who've been taken down by Me Too, by the time lawyers get involved, you know, it's it's over. And that's, I think, the case here. I think that Josh Wright basically behaved so poorly to so many different women that once this came out, he was going to have a hard time getting employment in fields where one's respectability is part of the conditions of employment. He's going to have trouble getting a law professorship anywhere, even though by all accounts, I mean, I'm not an expert on antitrust, but apparently he's a very talented scholar. And he's, you know, certainly was talented enough to work in a high position at the Federal Trade Commission. So, you know, but he's not going to get another job in government. He's not going to get, you know, none of these major law firms are going to want to touch a guy like this. So, you know, by the time he let it get to this point where he had had all these relationships with all these different women, had probably sexually harassed numerous other women, and it basically treated his prominence as a scholar and as a lawyer as a invitation to, you know, dip into the pool of one and two L's and have affairs with female students that he liked. Uh, once he conducted his life that way, he, he was screwed. Well, there's, I mean, there's a lot here also. What I wanted to say about discovery, again, just to, to make that clear for our non-legal audiences, to the extent there are some women who have not come forward or not wanted to be named, they can be subpoenaed in that process. And so it, it might make things even worse for him if at that point, like even women that were perhaps too scared to speak or whatnot, they, they will now speak out against him as part of that process. So as you were saying, his winning on the motion to to dismiss, that's almost definitely going to come against him. Like it's, it's not actually going to be helpful. But I guess part of the, the dilemma, if we can call it that here. Oh, I also wanted to say, I mean, you know, the Louis C.K. thing is complicated and there are certainly lots of people who are unhappy about his return. And, and there were allegations in the press at one point that he had made rape jokes like after his return where some people had literally walked out and you know it is it is rather questionable whether his return was an acceptable a socially acceptable thing but be that as it may i'm not i, I agree with well i'm that? not defending i, I just oh, i know you're not i know you know you were just making a factual statement there are isolated ex examples of people who've been able to recover from very serious allegations and certainly uh, you can't say that like Louis C.K. has faced total career destruction after this. He Absolutely. Absolutely. That's that's totally right. And what, what I was going to say is I still believe that the mentality of, well, there's nothing left to lose is a dangerous one. And, and, and here there are still things to lose. And there are, I don't know, people who might sue him because he is doing this, who might take legal steps against him and 
there's I don't know his personal situation at this point, but I would assume that he has built up some savings over the years from some of the the various lucrative deals he presumably had. And so to the extent he at least wants to hold on to whatever savings he has, potentially provoking uh, whether it's, you know, Elise and Angela or whether it is others into action, to me, you know, part of what it shows to me is that let's assume for a second even that everything he's saying in his complaint is true. Okay, we're going to assume all of that is true. I still feel like this is a person who is profoundly out of touch with what is happening and with society's perception of him. Like if he actually believes that the reason he's in all this trouble is, you know, purely because of some of these things that are in factual dispute, as, as I was saying earlier, that just seems completely off. And to the extent, I mean, even just the use of the word consensual in this complaint is obviously extremely fraught, right? Because you and I were talking a little bit before the show and, and I was uh, talking with, you know, some of our previous guests, like, what does consent even mean in a relationship that's part of that kind of a power dynamic uh, where, you know, he was not just a professor, just bad enough, but he was this this kingmaker. He was the person who had this center that brought in a lot of money, who could help people get these jobs. I mean, it has been said by others on social media, but if he actually believes that these women were with him just because he was so charming, just because he was such a great guy that they were willing to take whatever risks of, again, if he's telling the truth, that they were willing to take the risk of cheating on their marriages and cheating on their relationships just because he was so attractive and wonderful. And and, and it almost seems like part of what this complaint is about is, is to try to vindicate a certain version of masculinity. <laughs> Do you agree with me? And this is not a legal question, but this is more, this goes into the, the psychology that, that, that maybe what this is about isn't just about law. It's about saying, no, 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 no. Like, like you were saying, like, look what a great boyfriend I was. I was doing all these things. Yeah, yeah, it was kind of bad that I was cheating on my wife. But look, at the end of the day, we were all adults. Of course, the, the ages of these women are never mentioned uh, for, for good reason, right? And we were all adults. This was all consensual. This was all, I mean, is this an alternative reality? What is even happening, Dylan? Okay, so I have a couple of, first of all, I agree with that analysis. I think that is an explanation for his conduct in the situation where his conduct demands some sort of explanation, because it's certainly, you can't explain this complaint simply in legal terms. You know, it's a legally meritless complaint that makes the plaintiff look really bad. So you're right to say, well, why is he filing it then? And that's as good a theory as any. I don't know if this is a PG rated podcast or an R rated podcast, but I will say that like sometimes- You say whatever you want. Yeah, sometimes bro culture is not totally out of sync with reality. And one thing that, you know, guys, an expression guys have that applies to a person like this is, we'll say he's thinking with his dick. He is, uh, you know, this is a guy he has, and again, I'm not, 
obviously a professional psychologist, but I, I would call it the Sultan and his harem fantasy. So a segment of guys, it's not all guys, probably not most guys, hopefully not most guys, but there's a segment of guys who hold a sexual fantasy. And I don't, you know, an evolutionary biologist might be able to tell you where this comes from, or maybe a feminist scholar could. But uh, there's certainly guys out there. Is that you see this as a fantasy portrayed in pornography. The fantasy is, and you see guys acting it out. You see this with the casting couch in Hollywood and other places. They have a fantasy where they're a powerful person. And because they're a powerful person, they're able to have multiple relationships with women who fawn over them. And, you know, I, as I said, some men have this fantasy. Most of the men who have this fantasy probably are in no position to act it out. If you have the Sultan and his harem fantasy and you're a checker at Walmart or whatever, it doesn't matter. You know, you don't have the power to actually enact that fantasy into reality. But some of these very powerful types in Hollywood certainly have that power. You know, some very wealthy people in business have that power, and we've heard stories about them. I think, you know, it is a driving force behind some sexual harassment scandals and even sexual assault scandals. And people like Matt Lauer and Harvey Weinstein probably had this fantasy. And I think Josh Wright had it. You know, I think he felt like, and this is the point, you know, this is, this is the point. You've, I think the guys who have this fantasy feel that there's nothing wrong with it. They, they sort of start out with the reasoning that, that a lot of sex is traded for power in this world, which is true. And I just, I, there are structures. It seems almost like here he, he's conveying a message that his power didn't matter and that it wasn't because of his power. That these people were. I think that's the fantasy, Professor Manta. You see, the reality is they start out by saying there's nothing wrong with trading power for sex. Everybody does it. There's nothing wrong giving favors to people who have sex with you. There's nothing wrong. Everybody does that. You know, that's their reasoning. Everybody does these things. But then the fantasy takes hold. And then they think at the end that, in fact, that isn't what they, they were doing. In fact, these girls love them, you know, because they behave like they love you. And that's one of the things, like he quotes these messages from post-relationship where these women are, and I don't, I really want to be make clear, I'm not casting any aspersions on the women when I say this, but I'm saying this is the way Professor Wright portrays it. He portrays them as kissing up to him. He portrays them as bubbling him up and trying and inflating his ego and, and his narrative about it is because they need help, you know, so they're buttering me up and they're saying how great I am. But it's like, of course they're going to do that. You've already, over 20 years, established the terms of women's relationships with you. You've said that if you want Josh Wright to do stuff for you, that they've got to do things for you. And that's been your message that you've consistently said. So now these women who know you very well because they've been in relationships with you for a long time, are playing that game because that's the game they have to play. It's not because they love you, Josh. It's not because they think you're the greatest guy in the world. It's because they think this is the only way they can get you to fairly treat them and keep your promises and help them with your career as you said you would. So they do this. And that then feeds the fantasy that you're the Sultan and all the girls in the harem love you. And I think it does, I think it, it, there's a, 
human beings are really great at believing their own BS. And that I think you've gotten to sort of the deeper truth of this complaint, that the complaint is that originally Josh Wright traded favors for sex because that's what powerful men do. And they've done it since time immemorial and he did it. But these women, you know, he treated those, these women so well and he was such a great boyfriend and he was such a great lover and he was such a great friend and such a great confidant that they all fell in love with him. And then he spurned them and they acted like jealous, scorned ex-lovers. And that's what he believes in his own mind. But why you would put it in a filing in a public court case and why a lawyer wouldn't stop you from doing it. <laughs> Those are the real questions here. Well, you know, uh, you know, another fun fact, this is the, he's represented by the Banal Law Group founded by Jesse Banal, who became uh, probably best known for being one of Donald Trump's lawyers. So be that as it may, I think, you know, I think we've uh, really gotten to, like you were saying, not just some legal truths, but also some human truths. And, you know, to the extent that Josh or one of his lawyers is listening, you know, I hope that at some point, at some point, if nothing else, sort of for his own sake, there's going to be some kind of self-reflection about the fact that maybe some of these things were not what he thought they were, and that the public certainly has, in general, a very different read than his own. I think that's right, but I also don't think that Josh Wright is only or even the main person who needs self-reflection here. Josh Wright, as you point out, he has a lot of money. He's also, at least based on this complaint, he seems like a pathetic loser uh, who's going to have to live with the fact that, you know, so many women that he deluded himself into thinking they all loved him actually think, think he's a complete jerk. But the other group of people who need to start asking questions based on this are law schools, because, and maybe even beyond that, maybe graduate schools in general, because the basic problem is the ba there's a whole bunch of structures that enable Professor Wright and the Professor Wrights of the world. He's not the only one who does stuff like this. We've had other reports of sexual harassment in graduate schools. He's not the only one who does this, and he's a symbol of the structures at play here. What are those structures? Well, we, first of all, we deliver a bunch of 1Ls, first year law students, 22 years old, most of them, to law professors. And they're not supposed to be a male law professor's dating pool. These people are paying $50,000 a year to go to law school, and they're not paying it so that they can be the playthings of famous male professors. They're paying it so that they can get a legal education and gain the connections and the wherewithal to prosper in their careers. So, you know, why are law schools and graduate schools allowing these professors to date these women? They, they wouldn't get to meet them otherwise. You know, if it, outside the law professor, law student relationship, if Josh Wright had hit on a bunch of random 22-year-old graduate students, he would have struck out with them. If he had swiped them on Tinder, they wouldn't have swiped them back. But because he has this power relationship and he's given access to them under false pretenses, the pretense is not that you, you can be these law professors play things, it's that you can get educated in the law and get connections and get, and get work experience. So that's the first thing. And then the second structure 
is we is an open secret, as you pointed out in one of your previous podcasts, that there's a lot of dating between students and professors and ex-students and professors. And there's a lot of favoritism too. Josh Wright is certainly not the first person in academia who recommended his girlfriend for a job. He's not the first person who recommended his you know, wife for a job. He's not the first person who helped get a job for somebody who was in a sexual relationship with. That happens all the time too. And then I would add one other thing about this, which is that this is tremendously unfair for female students who either like Professor Laser just don't want to be in a relationship with Josh Wright, or for that matter, and these are people who the legal education profession supposedly cares about, how about LGBT students, you know, lesbians? If, if you're a lesbian student, you don't want to sleep with your male professor. And if there's favoritism towards heterosexual female students who will date the professor, then lesbians are losing out. Trans students are losing out. Anybody who is not sort of conventionally young and attractive is losing out. You know, the, the, the older student with the two kids, maybe the male professor isn't interested in her. So you create this whole economy. And this is what happened in Hollywood with the casting couch too. You create this whole economy where sex is repeatedly being traded for favoritism. And that's unfair for all the women out there who either don't want to be sexually harassed and don't want to trade sex or who are not interested in these particular people because they're left behind while the people who play the game and sleep with Josh Wright, they get his favoritism. And law schools have to deal with that. They have to stop sweeping that under the rug. They have to start asking uncomfortable questions about whether it really is okay that their male professors are dating and sleeping with students and ex-students. And so far, I don't see that happening very much. And I think there's gonna be a lot of variance there between institutions, depending on who's in leadership and at what point in history. And it's 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 fairly complicated and multi-layered certainly, but you know, there is this certain type of male academic where one gets the sense, and again, I'm not saying it's the majority or anything like that, but there is a type where one gets the sense that this is somebody who will either help men whose intellect he respects, or he will help women that he's attracted to, whether something happens with them or not. And, and that part of why that happens is because the woman is always seen as object or potential object from the beginning. So, so her intellect by that type of person never even gets compared to the intellect of like the, the male buddy or bro or whatever. And, and that, I mean, it, it creates a very bad dynamic. A lot of people, especially if they feel like, oh, I vote Democrat or, you know, I, I'm a feminist myself, like that, that could not possibly be something I'm doing. And there are just a lot of biases operating, I think, for a lot of people subconsciously where they are doing that and where they really need to ask themselves some questions as to how many men have I mentored over the years versus how many women? How many women have I mentored over the years that I didn't find attractive? Right? Like all of these kinds of things where, you know, I mean, it, it, it's just if you look at the, the surveys, for example, that the Yale Law women run every 10 years or whatever it is and sort of how little progress is made. I think, you know, you're right. Like there are going to be some hard conversations that need to be had. And there are a lot of people who don't want to have these conversations and don't want to have these conversations with their colleagues 
where they saying to their colleagues, like, hey, what are you doing? Like, you know, how, how come all of your RAs look the same, right? <laughs> that kind of thing. So anyway, look, thank you so much for this wonderful conversation. I learned a lot. I'm sure our listeners learned a lot. And, um, the you know, people can find you on Twitter. We're putting all the information in the show notes. And I will, uh, I will close out here. If you enjoy this podcast, please rate it five stars so that others have a chance to listen to it as well. And make sure to subscribe so that you can get our future episodes. All our platforms are accessible at strangersoninternet.com. Again, that's strangersoninternet.com. There's no the in there. You can become a part of our community by joining the Strangers on the Internet Facebook group or following us at Swipe Strangers on Twitter, Instagram, Threads, or Mastodon, where we are on the Falstodon server with two S's. We also appreciate support to defray our costs to run the podcast. You can help us out at Swipe Strangers on coffee.com, which is ko-fi.com. I would like to thank my husband, Carl Sferini, for sound editing, as well as Vlad Kujuku for permission to use his music for this podcast. Bye, everyone. Mm-hmm.